The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, and they spoke, saying, I will sing unto Yahweh, for he has triumphed, triumphed. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. My strength and song is Yah, and he's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. God of my father, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Chariots of Pharaoh and his host he has cast into the sea, and his choice captains are sunk in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, dashes in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellency, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your wrath. It consumes them as stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flood stood upright as a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, earth swallowed them. You and your loving kindness have led the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have taken hold on the inhabitants of Philistia. Then were the chiefs of Edom dismayed. The mighty men of Moab tremble, take, trembling takes hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread falls upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people pass over, O Yahweh till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, a place for your dwelling you have made, O Yahweh, a sanctuary, O Lord, your hands have established. Yahweh shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, and Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed, triumphed. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word this day. We thank you for the song of Moses as we find it here in Exodus 15. And we do pray that you would make clear to us Christ our Savior and King in the song. Indeed, that from this song you would teach us to pray, that you would teach us to sing, and that you would direct our faith to more fully follow after you, strengthened by your Spirit, that we might honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes words alone won't suffice. Sometimes words need music to make them more glorious. Consider the opening words of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah. 
Now, I can read those words in a matter of seconds, and they're good and true. But when sung as arranged by Handel with the choir and instrumentation, it's glorious and, and nothing short of angelic. Or even the final lyrics. And he shall reign forever and ever. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings forever and ever. And Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Again, true words, biblically sound, but in Handel's setting, they'll make an impression upon your heart, mind, and soul than just mere words alone. True confessions, this is probably the closest I've ever been to making use of audio or video during a sermon uh, in order to play a clip of this marvelous work. I'd imagine many of you have heard it, or if you haven't, then that's your homework. Uh, listen to it later today or, or this week. And if you have heard it, then listen to it again. So here we are in Exodus 15, and what is referred to as the Song of Moses, and we have poetry, we have music that accompanies the words. Of course, we don't know what the music was or sounded like, but it was probably chanted in some form or fashion, and there are versions of uh, this song which can be sung or chanted today. It is an ancient song. Uh, the first song explicitly mentioned in Scripture. And certainly it's a fitting occasion for a song. Yahweh has redeemed Israel from Egypt. He's delivered them through the Red Sea. But not only that, He destroyed the enemy as well. And you'll recall from chapter 14, where the details of Israel's deliverance are delineated, that Yahweh is glorified in the destruction of Pharaoh and his chariot army. That was part of the purpose. Now in chapter 15, we have a poetic recounting of this event through the song, presumably composed by Moses, though there are some scholars who contend it was Miriam. Given the explicit reference to the song of Moses in Revelation Revelation 15, I'm more inclined to stick with Mosaic authorship and also because he authored uh, Exodus. When exactly Moses and Israel sang the song is debated, it seems pretty natural to read it uh, that they sang it immediately after they were delivered and given... Uh, the direction in verse 22 to set out from the Red Sea, well, then that makes the setting for the singing of the song by the Red Sea the obvious choice. Of course, we're not told all of the, of the logistics of how they sang it together, uh, just that they did, which we'll take at face value. While the song itself appears to be fairly straightforward, it's actually quite complex and masterfully arranged. The song is uh, typically... Um, set forth in three stanzas, verses 1 through 5, 6 through 10, and 11 through 18. And that's how we'll consider it this morning. But there's also some pretty compelling scholarship for the song being broken into seven stanzas, which then actually echoes the creation week. You have general praise for Yahweh uh, conveyed in stanzas 1, 3, and 5, followed by specific historical, historical examples from the Red Sea and its effects on the nations in stanzas 2, 4, and 6. The seventh stanza is a prayer to God, a prayer for God to establish Israel and his own habitation in the land. Well, this is analogous to uh, creation that you have days one through three, God forms, and then days four through six, he fills with days uh, one and four, two and five, three and six, corresponding with one another. And then what's the seventh day? Well, you have Sabbath, you have worship, you have rest or sanctuary. The promised land was the, to be a land of rest, of Sabbath, and where God would establish his sanctuary. So whether it's the creation week or the song of Moses, you have three pairs followed by Sabbath or sanctuary. 
It's also fitting that there's creation, new creation imagery for Israel, even as we noted the connection to creation with the Red Sea crossing, particularly the parting of the waters, the separation of waters above and waters below. Nevertheless, uh, we're still going to examine the song in three stanzas, which, again, works quite well and is perfectly uh, fitting, as we'll go on to see, and nor does it mean that the seven-stanza structure is invalidated. They actually can both be true at the same time, because Scripture is written so well that it can work on these multiple levels. One other point to bring to your attention here at the outset is that this is a song to Yahweh, as verse 1 explicitly states. And Yahweh's name is mentioned ten times throughout the song. All told, uh, the name Yahweh is used 13 times in verses 1 through 21. And remember, what does the name Yahweh mean? Covenant keeper. It's Yahweh's memorial name. El Shaddai means almighty. Yahweh is the faithful promise keeper. And what has just taken place bears witness to this reality. So Moses and the sons of Israel sing to Yahweh, And verses 1 through 5, they have a chiastic structure as can be seen in the sermon notes on page 20 of the liturgy. And so, continuing with verse 1, I will sing to Yahweh, for exalted in triumph he triumphed, chariot, horse, and driver he cast into the sea. Then verse 4, chariots of Pharaoh and his army, or his strength, he threw into the sea, and his best captains are sunk in the Red Sea. And then you get a bit more information in verse 5. Depths covered them. They went down into the deep sea as a stone. So clearly the complete defeat of the enemy is worth singing about. And bookends this first stanza, so to speak. And appreciate how verses 4 and 5 build on verse 1. There, in verse 1, it's the simple mention of the chariot, horse, and rider being cast into the sea. Here, in these later verses, it's the chariots of Pharaoh and his strength, his army. But even more, his best captains, his best officers, the the royalty of Egypt, arguably the best of the military and society, and they're sunk in the Red Sea. And then appreciate how verse 5 stirs the imagination. The depths covered them, and they went down to the deep sea as a stone. Now, if you've ever dropped a rock in a stream, river, or lake, what does it do? Well, it immediately sinks. It plummets to the bottom. And if you drop it into a body of water that has some depth, you quickly lose sight of the rock as it disappears into the murkiness. Well, that's what Pharaoh and his chariot army and horses and best men are like. Stones sinking in the sea. Next, in the first part of verse 2. My strength and my song is Yah. That's an abbreviated name for Yahweh. And He is to me for salvation. Now, notice immediately how personal Yahweh is declared to be by Moses and Israel. Yahweh is my strength, my song, my salvation. Yahweh is their source and reason for strength, singing, and salvation. And then in the corresponding section in verse 3, what do we read? Yahweh, a man of battle. Yahweh, his name. Again, the emphasis upon the name of Yahweh. And notice the connections that Yahweh is strength, song, and salvation because he's also a man of war. Because he goes to battle for his people. And this was clearly displayed in what took place, as we noted over the last couple of weeks. Israel didn't do anything to rescue themselves. It was all God's doing. It was all of his grace. Salvation by grace alone. His grace to them that brought about their deliverance. He told them to stand still, be quiet, and watch. Yahweh was the one who acted. And now they're rightly singing about Yahweh the warrior. 
Yahweh the God, armed in military attire to contend with all the forces of his foes. This too is worth singing about. You know, the engines of war, the, the chariots and horses have been destroyed. And if God is a warrior and we're made in his image, well then that makes us warriors too. He is Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies. And we're part of that host, part of that, that army. And we shouldn't shrink back from that identity. And as one theologian pointed out, if we rightly understand the name of Yahweh and the implications of the third commandment and not taking his name in vain to no purpose, that if we understand that all, that also entails a positive confession of faith, then we are keeping the third commandment when we understand God's name in this way and that we're called to be warriors and fight against sin. But then what's at the center section of this first stanza in the second half of verse 2? This is my God, and I will adorn him, God of my Father, and I will raise him up. Notice the name change and the association that's being made. God equals Elohim, the Creator God. And this same God is Yahweh. And it's this God they will beautify or adorn, typically rendered praise. Notice again the use of the second person possessive, my God. But then also note that he's my father's God, and I will exalt him. Well, who was their father's God? El Shaddai, the Almighty. And he and Yahweh are the same. And even more, El Shaddai and Yahweh are Elohim. Now, I know you know that, but, but it's good for us to, to walk out the implications a bit and make the connections and see the progress of thought and how the text is subtly going back to Genesis chapter 12 and drawing in the experience of the patriarchs and the promises that were made to them, which are now further coming to pass in the events at the Red Sea. Well, next we come to stanza 2 in verses 6 through 10. Uh, the chiastic structure here might be a bit of a stretch uh, and is a bit more thematic than having a direct correlation of language in the text. Uh, an alternate structure, uh, which is an original with me, is also there in the notes in which there's more of a progress of uh, a building of the story in song because of the connections between wind and waters in verses 8 and 10. And the pursuit of the enemy is the center point, and then there's no corresponding A prime. Well, in verse 6, immediately notice the repetition. Your right hand, O Yahweh, being glorious in power, your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters those being hostile. Two times right hand is mentioned. And this is its first occurrence in Exodus. Oh, what is, what is the right hand? What's the hand of action? It conveys power and strength, even as the song itself testifies. What does it mean if someone is a right hand man? Well, that they're typically indispensable and do things for the one in charge, the one giving the orders. Upon hearing of the amputation of Stonewall Jackson's left arm due to the wounds he'd received from friendly fire, General Lee sent a message to Jackson via courier after his surgery. Give General Jackson my affectionate regards and say to him, he has lost his left arm, but I my right. See, Jackson was Lee's right-hand man. Thought of him as his right arm. Still more, it could very well be that in the mention of Yahweh's right hand that we have an allusion to the second person of the Trinity. Because where is Jesus described as sitting in heaven? At the right hand of the Father. And then what do we read about in verses 8 and 10? And at the wind of your nostrils, 
you blew with your wind. Why is that significant? Well, in Hebrew, the word for wind is the same word for spirit. And so what we have here in this song, it's, it's fundamentally Trinitarian. Verse 7 declares, And in the abundance of your majesty you have thrown down those rising against you. You send forth your burning anger. It devours them as stubble. Now here there seems to be some underlying fire imagery, which perhaps points us to Yahweh's presence in the pillar of cloud and fire. Again, another picture of the Holy Spirit. Egypt rose against Yahweh and it has been thrown down, and this burning anger burns them up like stubble or chaff. Interestingly enough, this word stubble was used back in chapter 5 and verse 12 when Pharaoh refused to give straw to Israel in order to make the bricks. And so we read, the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. So now the Egyptian army is compared to that. They've been consumed in Yahweh's fire, even in his waters of wrath and judgment and are like stubble. In verse 8 we read, And in the wind of your nostrils heaped up waters, stood upright as a heap, the streams, condensed deeps in the heart of the sea. And this, of course, is referring to the, the walls of water to the north and south through which Israel passed and which proved to be a destructive force against Egypt. But then notice how sure the enemy is in verse 9 in what he can accomplish, even as it echoes what Pharaoh and Egypt were thinking when they pursued Israel into the Red Sea. Said those being hostile, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide plunder. My desire shall be filled with them. I will cause to empty my sword and will cause my hand to seize them. Clearly, Egypt had bad intentions toward Israel, whether to plunder, seize them, destroy them, etc. And their arrogance is portrayed as a contributing factor to their demise. Remember, Yahweh set a trap for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh drove headlong into it, so sure of victory when in fact he was hurtling to his ruin. Verse 10. You blew with your wind, covered them in the sea, they sank as lead in the majestic waters. Now note the allusion back to verse 5, where they sank like a stone. Here they sink like lead, perhaps an allusion to their weapons. But it was Yahweh's wind that blew, it was the Holy Spirit who acted in bringing the walls of water down upon them. Again, what are Moses and Israel singing about? The destruction of the enemy. That's part of their song of salvation. And this is a theme that we often find in the Psalms as well. And such faithful thinking should inform our faith, our thinking, our singing, and hymnody. As one theologian wrote in the early 90s, if we drift from the Psalms, the war chants of the Prince of Peace, we shall drift into an easy and lax piety. The inner warfare will be de-emphasized and the warfare for the world will disappear. The focus of hymns tends to be on matters easier for us to talk about, such as suffering and happiness. How many hymns, etc., do you know that ask God to judge the enemy? In the face of abortion, pornography, rape, drug addiction, and Islam, nothing less than psalms will cut the mustard. The fact of the matter is that the present generation of American Christians will either learn to sing psalms or it will die. Well, surely we can add more issues, more enemies to the list. Optional homework or extra credit for this week. Look up the song Chester, written by the early American composer William Billings, and listen to it along with the lyrics. And the tune is marvelous, and, and while we might not agree with all that's expressed, the hymn begins, Let tyrants shake their iron rod, and slavery clank her galling chains. We fear them not, we trust in God, New England's God forever reigns. 
In the next stanza, Billings mentions by name five of the British generals, referring to them as one infernal league combined. Well, if any of you have watched the John Adams miniseries starring Paul Giamatti, they, they sing this hymn at, at one point in, in that series. And again, we may disagree with some of the application of the theology that's expressed, but perhaps we can appreciate Billings' instincts to write a hymn that isn't afraid to include enemies. Stanza 3, verses 11 to 18. Here we're back to a clearer chiastic structure, and the focus of attention stays on Yahweh, but moves forward to Canaan, to the promised land, which is, which is interesting to consider. Verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, being feared and praised, doing wonders? The question is asked, and it's a rhetorical one, who is like Yahweh among the gods? And of course the answer is no one. He alone is majestic in holiness. And while we often think of holiness as separation or being set apart, which has its place, uh, we also do well to equate holiness with integrity. That Yahweh is unique, sound, and incorruptible. And there's no one or nothing else like Him. Being feared and praised um, is watered down to awesome and glorious deeds by the ESV. Fearful and praises, as the New King James renders it, is closer. And the language here conveys the sense that Yahweh's work inspires fear and praise. And that's not necessarily antithetical. When considering Yahweh's mighty deeds, not only at the Red Sea, but also back in Egypt, then praising Him for what He's done is a rightful expression of fear. This word wonders was used back in chapter 3 and verse 20, when Yahweh says to Moses, So will send out my hand, so I will send out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in it. And after that, He will send you out. Verse 12. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. So here's the third mention of right hand in the song, but this time it's described as as stretching out. What does that echo from the previous chapter? Yahweh instructing Moses to stretch his hand, stretch out his hand to divide the waters, and then again for the waters to return. Perhaps there's a subtle allusion to Moses as Yahweh's right-hand man, yet another man in which Moses is a type of Christ at the Red Sea. Now, how should we take the information that the earth swallowed them and not the seed? You know, did Moses make a mistake in the song? Is this an error? No, part of the idea might be that this is describing their death, and so they're buried, as it were. They're in the grave, and the earth has swallowed them up in that fashion. It could be. But also there's a sense that these waters are part of the earth in contrast to heaven, that they're the earth waters. And so it's perfectly fitting to speak of the earth swallowing them up and more, that's probably more likely how we're to understand the imagery here. Of course, when you think of the earth swallowing someone up, your mind naturally jumps ahead to the episode of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their rebellion against Moses and Aaron leadership, Aaron's leadership in number 16, which was an attack against Yahweh's arrangement for things, against his holiness. And so, as functional Egyptians, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they're swallowed up by the earth. Verse 13. You led us in your covenant love, a people you have redeemed. You guide in your strength to the abode of your holiness. Moses and Israel sing of Yahweh's hesed, his covenant love, his promised grace, uh, a term that gets used with greater and greater frequency as we proceed in the Old Testament. But it connects back to covenants that have already been made. And specifically, uh, they sing that they've been redeemed. And this is only this word is only used here and in chapter 6 and verse 6, where God is speaking to Moses and says, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob 
as God Almighty, but my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it for possession. I am Yahweh. So you can hear all of that from chapter 6, verse 2 through 8. Uh, all of that encapsulated in this uh, verse of the song as, as Yahweh made good on his word to Moses. And then this leads us into verses 14 to 16 where we read that the peoples have heard and tremble. Philistia, the land to the west of what would be the promised land, there in agony, the chiefs of Edom, which was to the south and east of the Salt Sea, are dismayed. The leaders of Moab, which were north of Edom and to the east of the Salt Sea, are seized with trembling and melts away all those dwelling in Canaan. Uh, if we look a little bit more closely at this, there's an ABBA pattern or even a chiasm within a chiasm uh, because you have peoples, then you have inhabitants of Philistia and then chiefs of Edom and leaders of Moab. So you have chiefs and leaders right in the center. And then next come the inhabitants of Canaan, which matches inhabitants of Philistia. And then there's peoples, and then them and or Yahweh's people. Again, the song is highly structured. Well, why mention these four regions? Well, not it's hard to be entirely sure, except that it seems to be foreshadowing an entering of Canaan from the east, because that's where Edom and Moab were located. And perhaps the mention of Philistia first is because they were closest to Egypt and you will remember Egypt and uh, Philistia were related. Now, the Philistines were descendants of the Egyptians. And then note the imagery used in verse 16. Fall upon them terror and dread and greatness of your arm. They are silent as a stone until pass over your people, O Yahweh, until pass over this people you have purchased. So similar to Yahweh's hand, now there's mention of his arm. And the nations are silent as a stone, just as Egypt sank like a stone. You know, they don't move. They don't make a noise. They're paralyzed in fear because of Yahweh. Until when? When Yahweh's people pass over. Two times that verb is used, and it's the same verb used in relation to the Passover, and seems to allude to entering the promised land. And these people Yahweh has bought, he's purchased, he's acquired. Verse 17. You will cause them to go in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. A fixed place for you to dwell, you make, O Yahweh, a sanctuary, O Adonai, your hands established. Now, corresponding to this is the mention of the abode of holiness in verse 13. So what's, what's being conveyed here between these verses? Well, the language of mountain and sanctuary and being planted echoes back to Genesis 2 and the Garden of Eden, which was a mountain sanctuary and a place for Adam and Eve to meet with God. And what is being pictured is the establishment of a new mountain, a new mountain sanctuary, which takes shape in a few different ways. Arguably, this looks forward to Sinai and the worship and covenant uh, making that takes place there. There's also an allusion to the tabernacle, which you might remember was a miniature mobile mountain, but it was also an abode of holiness. 
But still more, this is looking forward to the promised land itself where God will dwell with His people. And of course, if they're singing the song right after the defeat of Pharaoh's our army at the Red Sea, how can Moses and Israel know all of this? Well, the best explanation seems to be that there's a prophetic aspect to the song. And the verb tense is used to convey, uh, they, that, 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 are, that are used, they convey completed action. Although these things, as though these things are already accomplished. And the idea of, so having completed verbs that convey completed action, then not surprisingly causes scholars a bit of heartburn, uh, causing them to question when the song was sung, composed, etc. Uh, but we don't need to share in their worry. The fact that these realities are expressed as having taken place is simply to express a theology of God uh, that since Yahweh is the one acting, there is good as done. But see, there's also some irony here uh, as well, particularly when it comes to the fear of the nations. Because what happens when Israel is instructed to go into the land? They refuse. You know, because they see the high walls of the cities and they see the giants. Well, they ended up, Israel becomes the ones, uh, the ones who are afraid. So that generation is judged. And so Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. But then 40 years later, what does Rahab tell the spies in Joshua chapter 2? I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. See, the Canaanites didn't forget what happened 40 years before. The drying up of the Red Sea didn't get lost in their news cycle. But the Israel of the Exodus, the unfaithful generation, refuses to act on the very reality of which they sing in this song. Well, how does the song conclude in verse 18? Just four words in Hebrew, a few more in English. Yahweh reigns to forever and ever. Yahweh is king and not Pharaoh. A clear conclusion to reach after the king of Egypt and his chariot army were drowned in the Red Sea. Yahweh has overthrown Egypt, the superpower of the day, and freed his people. And he's the king. And that's worth singing about. And should prove to be a great encouragement to the faith of Israel. Because what are Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Canaan in comparison to Egypt? Well, they're kind of small potatoes. Well, finally, verses 19 to 21, which aren't part of the song, but conclude this section. We have two verses of prose and then a final verse of poetry. Verse 19 is a familiar refrain from the previous chapter, isn't it? For went the chariots, uh, the chariot horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea... And returned Yahweh upon them the waters of the sea. But the sons of Israel walked on dry ground in the middle of the sea. Yet again, we're told, the waters of judgment upon Egypt were the waters of salvation for Israel. In verses 20 to 21, And took Miriam the prophetess, sister of Aaron, a timbrel in her hand, and went out all the women after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to Yahweh, for in triumph he triumphed, for a chariot horse and driver he cast into the sea. Miriam is called a prophetess, which was an office women could hold. Uh, there, was never, there were never priestesses in Israel, and so we don't need to worry about any arguments for women pastors from Miriam's example. Uh, prophet and priest weren't the same thing. 
Uh, previously, uh, previously, we noted the correspondence between Exodus 14 and 15 of salvation via water and thunderstorm, followed by song, which is a pattern we also see in Judges 4 and 5. And who's a significant character in those chapters in Judges? Deborah. And what was she? A prophetess. It could make for an interesting study to compare the similarities and differences between these respective chapters and episodes. But what does Miriam do? Well, she takes a timbrel in her hand, which may have been like a tambourine or perhaps more like a small finger drum of some kind, and leads the women in singing and dancing. The specific mention of her hand is interesting to think about, as there's power in praise, so to speak. Uh, She didn't fight, uh, but perhaps what we see here is the right response for the bride, we might say. And then you'll notice that the content of her praise is nearly identical to verse 1, which may indicate antiphonal singing, you know, two voices going back and forth uh, with one another, with the men singing a part and then the women responding with uh, another part in turn. And while uh, we're uh, not planning to incorporate um, the women uh, dancing in our worship anytime soon, uh, dancing is a right response when the enemy is defeated and victory is won, even as we read about on plenty of other occasions in Scripture. Sorry to disappoint you on that front. Well, what are a few final observations, the song of Moses, um, that we can make with the, with the song having been set before us? First, let us recognize that our greatest enemy has been defeated, that death has been swallowed up in victory, and that being, and that being true, then all other lesser enemies need to be put into perspective. And this isn't to make light of those enemies. But just as Israel had the evidence of Pharaoh's army dead upon the seashore, which should have galvanized their faith and granted them boldness against the enemies to come, even the giants in the promised land, likewise God's people today should not shrink back from confrontation because Christ has won the decisive victory on the cross and in the resurrection and the rulers and authorities have been disarmed. No, we we put on the whole armor of God and we stand. Even as Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So we're called to such courage, to such faith, rightly keeping things in perspective according to the word of our, the word and commands of our Savior and King. Second, in light of Christ's decisive victory, let us not be surprised that when the arrogant and the wicked appear to be on the brink of glorious triumph, that they're actually on the precipice of defeat. Remember, the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The wicked do the work and the righteous inherit it. We see this pattern over and over again in Scripture and in history. And for every reason to believe, this pattern will continue according to God's Word. You know, how did Israel get armed for the coming battles? Well, likely by taking the armor uh, and weapons off of the dead Egyptians lying on the seashore. When Israel takes the promised land, do they have to build houses, plant vineyards, etc.? No, they inherit what's already there. They take over. Similarly, God's people have always made use of technology for the furtherance of the kingdom, have always been able to redeem uh, such things and put to use what the world may produce first. And that's been the pattern from Genesis 4 on and continues to be the case for believers today. So whether Paul and the apostles traveling the Roman roads throughout the empire or the reformers making use of the printing press, so we have so many tools at our, at our disposal which we shouldn't hesitate to use. 
And as believers, we should be actively thinking of creative ways in which we can make use of what's available to us, even as those who, who really know what it means to rule and subdue the earth as we seek to live to the glory of God. And then third and finally, and perhaps most obviously, let us recognize the importance of song. Singing puts truth down to our hearts. It's powerful in a way that's sometimes hard to quantify. But I'm guessing all of us can readily sing lyrics to songs that we might not have given thought to for years. And yet it's so ingrained into our our thinking and our being. Of course, this is also an implicit admonishment for us to take heed to the music we're consuming and we're listening to and how it's shaping our person and thinking. You know, music isn't neutral, and it's not accidental that the Arian heresy spread in the early church through Arian hymns, or that the Reformers knew the importance of hymnody, psalmody, and prayer books for the shaping of the church. That we are shaped by what we sing, and so it's all the more important for us to be steeped in the tradition passed down to us by our musical forebears in the church, but especially for us to be regularly imbibing the psalms. And don't get me wrong, I'm not implying that all secular music is bad and that, you sh- you know, that all you should listen to is Christian radio. No, there's, there's plenty of, uh, on Christian radio that's no better or even worse than what's on the local country station. Rather, foundational to our singing, the, the melodies we find ourselves humming or songs that come to mind throughout the day, the lyrics that spontaneously fall from our lips, let them be saturated by Scripture. For when we sing, when we praise, when we recount the great things that have been done by God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we declare, Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigns, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that He reigns forever and ever, then we're all the more emboldened to go forth, sure of the promises that He's made to His people. And that boldness is renewed here in His presence and with His people, with whom you unite your voice in song. In praise and and, and so so readily and fully and vigorously sing that Christ has triumphed gloriously and the enemy has been swallowed up in victory. Let us pray. Father and our God, we again thank you for your word, for the marvelous way in which it is written, and for you and for how you would impress it ever more upon our hearts and lives. Be pleased to do so now to your honor and for your glory. And may your spirit help us in these things. Indeed, may we sing more skillfully and joyfully for the great redemption that is ours in Christ and the triumph that he has achieved. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.